Hey, and welcome to the show today. You're listening to SenseSensor.com, Feel Your Heart podcast. And we have another really great show for you today. This podcast is made by SenseSensor.com, the leading relationship institute for relationship skills and courses based on science made practical. To get the one-hour free webinar that will give you the key skills to get a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, just go to SenseSensor.com and sign up. The link is in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and leave a review. It really helps me keep the positive energy going to make more podcasts. So welcome to the podcast. Today we have Laurie on the podcast and she wrote the book called Becoming Cliterate. And we're going to talk about the book and other topics around sexuality today. And hopefully we'll get a lot of good content. So welcome on the podcast, Laurie. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Would you be able to tell the listeners just a little bit about your background, just for anyone who maybe haven't haven't seen your talk before or read your book? Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. So I am a professor at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida in the U.S., where I teach the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of undergrads a year. I'm also a licensed psychologist in private practice, seeing clients for general and sexual issues. And I'm the author of two books, both aimed at empowering women sexually, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, and as you mentioned, Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It. Yeah, thank you, Lori, for that. And so everybody knows you know, who I'm speaking to today. And I really wanted to, what what I was interested in is also knowing what motivated you to write the book Becoming Cliterate, because I don't know, so often people have, I guess, some kind of motivation for why they care about a topic. What What made you engage and write that book? Well, thank you for asking that. It was actually my students who motivated me to write this the book both their their experiences and their frustrations and their successes. Um, in a nutshell, through teaching human sexuality to hundreds of undergrads, I mean, I would not just talk about and teach about the statistics behind the orgasm gap, but I got to talk to young women and men who were living the orgasm gap and experiencing it in their lives. And uh, many young women having trouble orgasming and what I was so surprised to find is how little accurate sexual knowledge um, the young people in my classes had. And um, I started teaching to the orgasm gap, why we have it, how to close it. And I would get beautiful letters and notes and emails from people saying things like, thanks to your class, I'm orgasmic, or thanks to your class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. And I just started thinking this needs to be out there beyond my my classroom. And I wanted to do something to solve this one cultural sexual problem. So I set about writing the book. That's wonderful. And I just obviously read the book as well. And I really, really enjoyed it. I think it's such an important topic um, and something that can really help free people up and also understand yeah, how normal they are and that there's nothing wrong with them. I think you mentioned obviously the concept orgasm gap, but there might be some listeners out there sitting, shaking their head and thinking, what are they talking about? So can you tell us a bit about what is the orgasm gap? Absolutely. And it's funny, I'm glad you said that because as I was explaining it, I thought, oh, I should explain what that is. So I'm so glad you followed up with that. 
So the orgasm gap is the consistent finding across research um, that when cisgender men or people who are born with a penis who identify as men get it on with cisgender women, people born with a vagina who identify as women, um, the men are having way, way, way more orgasms than the women are. It's just one or two examples to bring the gap uh, to light. Um, in one study, 39% of women versus 91% of men said they always or usually always orgasm during a sexual encounter. And that study didn't ask the context of the sex, but other research tells us that if it's first time hookup, the results, the gap is even bigger um, and it gets smaller in the context of a relationship, but it never closes altogether. That is really interesting. And is there any explanation to why there is this big pleasure gap? Because I think that's obviously part of what the book is exploring, right? Exactly, exactly. So many people say, oh, it's just because women's orgasms are difficult or elusive, but that is not an explanation I buy. And I don't buy that explanation based on science. That research shows that when women pleasure themselves, um, when they're not with a partner, 95% orgasm easily and within minutes. Um, and also when women have sexual encounters with other women, they have more orgasms than when they have sexual encounters with men. Um, one really, really fascinating study took a group of bisexual women, so women who were having encounters with both women and men, and asked about orgasm, and they orgasmed about 65% of the time in first-time hookups with women as opposed to 7% of the time with first-time hookups with men. So all of that is leading me to the question that um, is the problem is when women and men get it on, we have this misguided way of thinking about sex. And it's basically that intercourse is the most important act, that we revolve everything around it. And the vast majority of women do not orgasm from intercourse alone. We need clitoral stimulation. Yet we consider that in this misguided way of having sex, not that important, just a warm up to the main event of intercourse. Even the words we use, foreplay, as if it's not important, it's just a warm up. Sex and intercourse, as if they were the same thing. So, that there's a lot of problems that lead to the organ gap, but that is the biggest one. Yeah, and it's really interesting what an enormous lack of education there is, I find, because I think a lot of men simply haven't learned they haven't been taught this right nobody talks to them about it when they first sexual exposure is probably pornography i think for a lot of men maybe even more so today um, and they simply don't learn to understand female sexuality both the psychology of it and also the physical aspects of it and uh, it was exactly. really interesting what you mentioned about that they had more orgasms with women than with men and also that they would have more orgasms when, when the longer they got into the relationship or compared to the first few encounters. Um, is there any particular reason that the research kind of had for understanding why that is? 
Yeah. Well, in terms of the orgasming more with women, it's, you know, because there is no penis to revolve the encounter around that lesbian sex definitely focuses on clitoral stimulation. And it's more of a turn-taking model. I'll do you, you do me, rather than this mythical thing where we revolve it all around intercourse and both partners are supposed to come from that act. So that explains that. And then, um, yeah, and here's the reason why. And this this statistic just kind of blows my mind, to tell you the truth. Um, basically, when women pleasure themselves, they focus on external stimulation, sometimes also coupled with internal, um, you know, penetrative stimulation. But in, hold on to your hats here, everyone, because only less than 1% of women pleasure themselves by putting something inside their vagina exclusively. Yeah, that is really an important point to hear, isn't it? And also, I guess, from a psychological standpoint, I guess also the fact that it takes away the pressure, right? It takes away feeling any shame around the body, uh, takes away having to focus on somebody else and just be able to be present with our own body, right? When, when, when we pleasure ourselves and don't have a partner there. Absolutely. The reason it works so well is not just the external stimulation, although that's a big part of it, is like you're the only one involved. So you don't have to worry. Do I look okay? Am I doing this okay? You can just hopefully, um, even though for some people, even that takes work and practice, but hopefully you can just relax into it and be mindful and immersed in your body sensations rather than self-monitoring and up in your head. Yeah, which is so important. And what can we then do? Because we talked a lot about the orgasm gap. What can we actually do to start closing this orgasm gap? Because I guess people are interested in how can we solve this issue? Yeah, and I guess I have two answers, you know, depending on if we're talking about closing it in a societal level or we're interested in closing it in individual bedrooms or both. And that's why I wrote Becoming Cliterate to be both a combination of cultural analysis and a call to action and self-help. So in terms of, in a nutshell, in terms of the societal action, I think we need to really uh, start teaching this in sex ed, teaching people about the clitoris, change the language we use when it comes to sexuality, be much more critical consumers of sex scenes that are showing these false ideas, calling them out. So those are a lot of the things we can do culturally. And then individually, I mean, I think it is. it starts with educating people about women's ways of orgasm, but then valuing them and also teaching people how to mindfully immerse in their own pleasure, teaching them to throw out this misguided cultural script and adopt kind of a turn-taking model um, to encourage the use of vibrators, which is very important. And of course, sexual communication. Um, that is also rarely taught, but so important when it comes to women's orgasms. Yeah, I think actually that's a really interesting point. Maybe we should touch on a bit more because 
Oh, I forgot where I read this article. I read an article, and I don't know if it's correct, but I remember reading an article that mentioned that they found that couples that were into kink seem to have much better communication around sexuality. Of course, because they are, I guess, they're more forced to talk around boundaries um, and you know likes and dislikes. Also, because some of the things they do can be slightly unsafe, so it's even more important. And therefore, it also seemed to improve their sex life and also their relationship in general. And somehow, you're right, it seems for so many people to be so hard to communicate about sex. A lot of people say, oh, it takes a sexy away, um, which I don't necessarily agree with. But what are your thoughts about this? How can people start engaging and having more open communication about it? Yes, and, and that's, I have read that study as well, and the explanation is exactly right on. I mean, when you have to talk about consent and boundaries, you have to communicate um, and that really enhances sexuality. And the research is really clear, too, even in non-kinky couples, that, that communication is the bedrock to make your bedrock. And we have to get rid of another pervasive myth alongside the one that women should orgasm um, from penetration. And that is that talking ruins things or you know, in the movies, like no one talks, right? Everyone just knows what to do. They just do it right. And it feels good. And that's just not how it works. And in real life communication outside of the bedroom and during a sexual encounter and after a sexual encounter really improve things. I've heard so many people say like, oh, it's too private. I couldn't talk about that. And my answer is, well, if you're going to do it with the person, you might as well talk about it too. Um, and I also jokingly often tell people that it is much easier to learn to communicate about sex than it is to learn to read minds. You're going to have a better success rate with that. And, and not to think of sexual communication as this big, scary thing. It's really just a subset of good general communication listening to the other person, talking about it, hearing what they want, you know, discussing things. Yeah, I really like that point. And also I would say that in having open communication about our sexuality is a massive opportunity to increase intimacy in our sexuality too. Because one thing is getting physically naked with each other. Another thing is to share our deepest fantasies. And it doesn't mean they have to be lived out, but even sharing them, getting them accepted. Or even in some cases, I know with my ex-partner, where we wouldn't necessarily live all of them out because maybe they crossed a boundary for someone. But then I could tell them to her as a story, as a narrative that helped, you know, turn her on and enhance her experience etc and there's something hugely intimate in being able to do that and share that with someone and trusting somebody in that way because it's very vulnerable and even the same I had some people ask me about using dirty talk and I said of course you have to find out what what people like and what they don't like their individual preferences and words and again you can talk openly about this and talk about what might cross a boundary what might be stimulating and again there's it doesn't have to be degrading. It can actually, again, be a hugely intimate experience of people expressing their most core desires. So there's something really beautiful, I think, is often missed in the intimacy department if people don't actually communicate because then it just becomes a purely physical experience and it can be so much more. Um, oh, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. So there was one thing I wanted to speak to you about because I found that interesting and I, I would love to hear your opinion on this. And that's a bit about how the general, because you talked about the cultural implication from society, how does the gender inequality in general contribute to this pleasure gap that we are seeing? 
Yeah, thank you for asking that. I I think that, um, and I talk about it in my book, and I have to say it was one of the harder paragraphs to write because I wanted to convey wholeheartedly that I do not blame men for this, nor do I blame women. I blame the culture, and we're all steeped in this culture. And at the very, at the root of the orgasm gap is gender inequality, is a cultural privileging of male sexual pleasure and male sexuality. So what do I mean by that? Again, I'm not blaming men, but when you culturally privilege something, you assume that one group's experience is the right way or the normal way and that everyone else should conform to that. And by culturally privileging male sexuality, we are basically saying that the way men most reliably reach orgasm, intercourse, should be the way that women most reliably reach orgasm. And again, I mentioned this earlier, and I have a whole chapter in my book about language, and it's that was actually my favorite chapter to write. It was just... Um, you know, I believe so strongly in it that language reflects and perpetuates this cultural privileging. As I mentioned, we call foreplay, you know, all which is involves clitoral stimulation, like not the main event, foreplay, what comes before. Um, we use the word sex and intercourse as if they were the same. We call all of women's genitals a vagina, which it's not, that's just the hole where penises go in and babies come out. The whole thing is called the vulva. Most of the nerves one needs to orgasm is on the outside. And by doing so, we linguistically erase the part of ourselves that give women the most pleasure. So gender inequality is sort of the foundation on which the orgasm gap rests. Thank you so much for talking about that. I think I blame Freud, though. Freud, he did a lot of damage to female sexuality. <laughs> but, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, but that's a whole nother chat. <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, absolutely, <laughs> yes. So, for, yeah. No, go ahead, Laurie. I was going to say that for the listeners who don't know, um, just sort of Freud basically said there were two kinds of orgasms, which, side note, science is basically not supporting anymore. Most any orgasm, no matter where the stimulation involves the clitoris, which is a huge internal and external organ. But um, Freud said that as women mature, they will transfer their feelings from their clitoris to their vagina, which is, think about it, is so crazy. That's like, like we don't, as we get mature, we don't like change our body. That's like saying, well, you know, when you grow up, you'll be able to start breathing out of your ears instead of your nose. I mean, it's truly ludicrous. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I'm happy that at least I think Freud, he admitted before he died that he probably was wrong and that he didn't actually know. Um, so at least that was something, but it had already done quite a lot of damage by then. Absolutely, and, yes. And I think that's what I want to talk a bit about because I feel that and i guess this both applies to men and women but definitely more women that i met that there is still a lot of shame around sexuality while there's this expectation that outwardly women should look sexy there's often also this that they shouldn't necessarily be 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 sexual and i feel a lot of women i met and also partners i had still have a lot of shame whether it's around their bodies or around their sexuality um, what are some ways that maybe we can we can help women in this way and help support them 
you know, unleash and get rid of that shame. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that's so important that we instill so much shame around sex in general, but women's sexuality in specific. And I really underscore and appreciate what you said that women are supposed to be sexy, but not for themselves, but for 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 the male gaze, like for ob- an object rather than for their own pleasure. And that gets really internalized. I've heard many young women say things like, well, if it's good for him, it's good for me. And I think um, we have to really actively teach young women that their bodies are fine the way they are, that the way they get pleasure is fine, that sex is, you know, a natural phenomenon. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And that, you know, really give these empowering, loving messages to young women that you're fine the way you are. And we've got a long, long, long way as a culture to um, to get to that. Yeah, we really do. I think there's a whole massive industry flourishing on the fact of making women feel bad about their body, right? We have cosmetic surgery, of course, all the fashion, makeup, which all to some extent, you know, live on the fact that women feel they have to do something to improve the way they look. So yeah, it's really interesting to start seeing how much effort is actually being made to make women not feel good about their body and that they're just beautiful the way they are. Um, Absolutely. And, and you know, it's really interesting. I remember asking my mom once uh, if she had issues getting old and she always said to me, no, every age has its own beauty. And, you know, I think if we could put that into the general culture, that would do wonders. Oh, shout out to your mom. You know, <laughs> that is, yes. Exactly. Like, you know, I mean, we have this ideal image of beauty and it's young and it's sexy and it's it's unrealistic. It's digitally altered for most of the time. Yeah. And I think it's important that we're also aware that the images that we see impact, you know, what we get turned on by. So it's important to not keep exposing ourselves to only these artificial images. And this is also why in different cultures, they actually find different things attractive because we've been exposed to different things. I guess that's a norm of what's attractive. So I think it's just, yeah, at least important that we have that awareness so we don't have to buy into the messages. Absolutely. And in in my ideal dream world um, for sex ed in schools, we would teach media and porn literacy. We would teach people like, hey, you know, I think personally, you know, porn is here to stay. So I'm not, and I'm not anti-porn, but I'm anti-porn being used as a role model and as a sex education strategy. Um, so for example, the pe- the men in porn are chosen for having extra large penises. The women are chosen or have had them surgically altered to have these neat little inner lips. And that's not what most people are like. And, you know, inner lips um, can be, you know, two different sizes, one can stick out, etc. But in my ideal world in sex ed, we would teach porn and media lim- literacy. You know, we we tell a kid like when they're watching like a, you know, action movie, like, don't do that. That's fake when they're jumping off of the of the 10 foot building. But we never tell people, oh, and by the way, the stuff in porn is fake, too. And here's how. Yeah, I actually love that. that what a good uh, comparison to compare to movies and say, you know, this is not real. It's OK if you want to watch it, but just be mindful that it's not reality. I really like that point. Right. And one thing, Laurie, I really want to speak to you about as well is I'm very much into 
mindfulness and do my meditation and learning to be present. And would you be able to talk a bit about how people can use mindfulness to also increase their sexual pleasure and maybe even their chances of having an orgasm? Absolutely. And that's one of my favorite topics. And I have a whole section, as you know, in the book about mindfulness. And it's so, so powerful. So um, I'm guessing your listeners are aware, but that mindfulness is really pretty simple um, in concept, but very hard to achieve. It's putting your mind and your body in the same place in time. So And, you know, so many times our mind is one place and our body's another. And like a sexual example, we're in the middle of being touched. And instead of our mind being there with our body, we're like, am I taking too long? Do I look okay? Do I smell okay? And mindfulness is getting your mind and body in the same place. It's it's turning off your brain, but also noticing when it turns back on, when it wanders and draws it back. And You can learn that, as you said, through meditation. I also meditate every morning. Yoga is a fabulous mind-body practice to learn mindfulness. And I, in, in Becoming Cliterate, I say mindfulness is sex's best friend. And here's why. Because to have an orgasm, to have sexual pleasure, truly requires being in the moment, in your body, turning your brain off, noticing when it wanders, um, bringing it back. And really, really fascinating research shows that right before orgasm, your conscious brain turns off, your thinking brain, your monitoring brain. And it is about identical. It's the same brainwave state that one gets during mindfulness meditation is what you achieve right before orgasm. That is so interesting. And also I do something called five rhythms, which is basically you can say meditation and dancing, which also is great at, at just bringing me into a great practice of just being present in your body. And I think it's so important because also in general, I think often around sex, we forget how For most people, stress is a big break that really shuts us down, right? And shuts down our response and our, how sensations are perceived. And therefore, even using some kind of movement to get back in our body and release stress can be a great way to do that and find ways to relax. I know from movement to giving my partner a massage and make sure that they can just talk out any stress of the day before you even get sexual, I found at least could be really beneficial. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Dancing, yoga, anything that teaches you to stay in tune with your body. And and I had a dear friend who's a, a meditator, really, like, I mean, I don't meditate that long every morning. I, you know, but I do benefit from it. But, but he really meditates quite a bit. And he said something to me that was so powerful once it, but it was one of those things someone says in passing, but it clicks. Um, he said, the goal of meditation or mindfulness is not to always be in your body. The real practice is noticing when your mind wanders off and being able to call it back. And that's part of sexual communication too. I mean, I think it's great when couples can talk about how immersed were you? Did your mind wander? What could help you stay more present? Um, because it's normal. It is so normal for our mind to go wandering off but but the real practice is being able to pull it back and get back into one's body yeah thank you for bringing up that point and also you know i'm sure there are some listeners sitting out there now already that are listening to us talking and thinking yes yes i want to talk to my partner about 
sex and I want to start talking to them about what I like, what I don't like, etc. But how do I introduce this topic? Because they might be worried that their partner is going to get upset with them, think they're not good in bed or, or other issues. So how, how would be a good way for them to get this started? Yes. And that's why, again, I have the whole chapter in both my books about communication where I offer actual skills. But the first thing is to wrap your mind around it. Like the chances that your partner is going to get mad is much less, I found, than be relieved. And it all is about the way you approach it, right? And I think there's a few skills that make any conversation better. The first is metacommunication, which is communicating about communication. Give a little intro. Like, I want to talk to you about something I'm very concerned you're going to be upset, but I love you and I want to take this risk. So talking about talking about it. And then using I statements, don't blame your partner. You never do this and you never do that. And you're not, you know, that's nobody responds well to that. Own it. It's your, it's yours. Own it and own it with I statements. So I was listening to this podcast and I was learning about how sexual communication and clitoral stimulation can really enhance pleasure. Um, I would love us to talk more about sex, or I would love us to incorporate a vibrator into our encounter. How do you feel about that? And open the conversation by a meta communication and by owning it with an I statement, what you want, and, and throw in a few if it's a if it's a long-term partner who you do feel love, throw in some loving statements. That's always wonderful. You know, I love you. I love our sex life and I want to make it better. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And also I like what you said, the I statement and focus on what we want instead of what we don't want. And even I think if people do this, and I know some people that do that doing sex, that they will also have communication, especially if they're trying to learn about each other and, and you know, don't know that much still about each other's sexuality, then, you know, it's much more important to to say, yeah, you know, it would try and move up a little bit or try a bit more pressure rather than saying, I don't like this, what you're doing. Because again, it's just a more gentle way of guiding somebody towards finding out what it is you do want. Um, so yeah, I like what you said about focusing what it is that we want instead. And I also wanted to, yeah, so one thing I was curious about talking to you about as well is obviously there are women as well that have maybe never had an orgasm. There might be someone sitting out listening to this and thinking, yeah, this all sounds great, but I never had an orgasm. What are some ways of things that maybe tips that they can do to start exploring and, and finding out, you know, how they maybe can get their, their first orgasm? Absolutely. And there are um, many women out there who haven't or who aren't sure and um, the best thing to do is a two-step process. First of all, learn that mindfulness, learn how to turn your brain off, and also feel that you you deserve this pleasure. It's, it's for you. Um, so really work with your mind and then take matters into your own hands. In sex therapy, the first step always, always, always with working with a woman who's not had an orgasm is having her go home and masturbate with her hands, with a vibrator. By the way, if we have time, I'd love to debunk some vibrator myths. Um, but, you know, pleasure yourself. Find out, take the time what you want. Um, 
There's a website called OMG Yes, which can be very, very helpful. It teaches you different ways that women masturbate. It's educational based on research. Um, And just take the time, find out what you like. That's always the first step. Then the second step would be transferring that to sex with a partner because it's such underutilized advice, but it's so obvious, right? The most essential step to have an orgasm with a partner is to get the same type of stimulation as that you need when you're alone, which is fuels the orgasm gap because many women don't. But the first step, take matters into your own hands. Yeah, I really like that. And you're you're right. That is the most normal advice as well. And I think also what, what I would say is, because I think we're becoming a very goal-orientated culture and I feel often even the pressure of feeling that someone has to have an orgasm and even more so if they never had one can be something that stops it in the first place, right? So I would also say to people, and let me know if, if you think differently, but I really feel that taking away that pressure and saying let's instead focus on sensation and what feels good um, because that alone takes away this pressure of lying, thinking, oh, I should be having an orgasm. Why am I not having an orgasm? Am I taking too long? And all these thoughts that might be interrupting, um, actually moving towards that place. So even taking away that goal, a bit like with, with women that don't feel any sexual desire anymore, sometimes it's great to take away the pressure of even having to have sex. And in the same way here, I guess it could be really beneficial to say, actually, let's not even focus on orgasm. Let's just focus on what feels really good. I 100%, 100% agree with you. And, you know, that's a great irony about orgasm, right? That the goal and the quest to have one makes it less likely. But that's back to mindfulness, just focusing on pleasure, focusing on sensations, get rid of that goal orientation, um, make sex more fun and ironically makes orgasm less likely. So yeah, definitely a fan of non-goal oriented sexual encounters. Yeah, and I want to hear your debug of the myths around uh, vibrators. You said you were going to mention something about that. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. So vibrators have gotten this bad rap, right? They replace men, you know, blah, blah. And, you know, no, they don't. They don't cuddle. They don't say I love you. Um, And they're just a tool um, to enhance orgasm. We know that the clitoris is very responsive to the vibrations. So they just help. And women who use vibrators have easier, faster orgasms. There's a high degree of correlation between a man's acceptance of his partner's vibrator use and her sexual satisfaction. And so we have to get rid of this idea that real sex shouldn't involve vibrators. Um, I encourage so many, so many people to bring a vibrator to their sexual encounter, especially if you're going to adopt this turn-taking model or uh, during intercourse, if somebody really wants to orgasm during intercourse, well, you know, take your vibrator and use it on yourself during intercourse. So, you know, I use a metaphor in the book of a couple swimming in a swimming pool and they have a raft and they're jumping off the raft. They're jumping on the raft. They have a lovely day in the pool. Nobody is going to call their friend and say, oh, I had such a good day in the pool with my raft. Oh, and my partner was there. They're not even going to mention the raft at all. And the same thing goes with a vibrator. It's just a tool to enhance the experience. Yeah. And I even think, you know, I love different kind of vibrators and I think they 
for me, they've always been, I bring them in as, as soon as I can in a relationship because I think it actually takes a lot of pressure off in many ways. And I think if men could could start seeing it that way, that actually it's a helpful tool. If one that gives their woman more pleasure, which is a wonderful thing in itself, and also just for their own perspective, it actually takes a lot of pressure off. Suddenly you don't have to worry so much if you can't stay hard that long or if you can't last that long. And you can start realizing that actually... It's okay. It's not that big a deal. And actually, there's a lot of other ways you can give women far more pleasure. And I feel even that with some men, you know, a lot of men have anxiety about staying hard enough or not coming too quick. And actually, I think when they start realizing that it's not even that important for, for the woman's pleasure, it just takes so much pressure off them. And they realize they can actually give their woman a wonderful time, even if they sometimes can't get hard, even if they maybe do come too quick, then it's not that big a deal. Exactly. I mean, this whole thing of, you know, elevating the clitoris, elevating women's way of orgasming, it helps women and men. And it does so exactly the way you're talking about. We have all these myths again of men need to give a man, a woman an orgasm by lasting long and thrusting hard. And it's like, no, that's not what's going to get her there anyway. So take the pressure off, use a vibrator, use your hands, use your tongue. And then when you do have your pleasure, it doesn't matter how long or how hard. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a wonderful point because I know a lot of men have self-esteem issues and even feel devastated if suddenly say, oh, I couldn't get hard. And I said, but it's not actually a problem. The truth is it's often not a big deal. And you can give her a great time even without getting hard. So, you know, take the pressure off yourself. Um, so, yeah, I'm really happy that we, we just brought that up yes. as well because I think that can be useful for a lot of men, the male listeners. And... So we talked about a lot of points now about um, becoming clitorate. And I think, what would you say of all these different things, what is the biggest takeaway from your book? If people took one thing away today, what, what would that be? Mm. Uh, I'd say if they take one thing away, it is however you orgasm is the right way. And for the vast majority of women, that's going to be clitoral stimulation. So enjoy it, get the stimulation you need, immerse fully in it, and have fun. I love that. What a wonderful way to end. And remember that however your response is, it's absolutely normal and perfectly healthy and good. I think that is so important as well, which I think your book is wonderful at driving home that point too. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Laurie. It was a pleasure to have you here. And I think it's been really a lot of useful information. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and come back for our new weekly podcast. Also leave a review to keep the positive energy going that really keeps me motivated to make more of these podcasts. If you want to learn the key skills to a safe, intimate and passionate relationship, then head over to sensor.com and join the free one hour webinar. The link is in the description. You'll learn the four reasons that relationships break down. The how your attachment style may fuel conflict with your partner and how to break that cycle. Why people cheat and the one tip that can prevent it. The simple three-step formula to lasting love. So thank you for joining us today and I look forward to seeing you next week for another podcast. <laughs>